0: Hello and welcome to episode forty-two of Songs from a Padded Envelope. My name is Steve, <laughs> and I'm here with the chuckling co-host Ben. Yes,
1: <laughs> so you are. Uh, hello there, Steve.
0: Uh, you, this is what you're going to be known as from now on. The chuckling <laughs> the,
1: the No, come on! <laughs> can't be that. Can't be that. Uh, let, okay. Stop bloody chuckling then! At the <laughs> just, just for one day. No one else can see me chuckling. <laughs>
0: Andre Chan is our guest for this episode who joined us from his home in Wexford, Ireland, to take us over to Switzerland and into a conversation which spans decades of music making. Ben, can you say a bit about how we ended
1: up speaking with Andre? I'm glad you asked me that question because I'd written it down here as something I wanted to talk about. Because it was a it was one of those quite strange routes to to finding someone that we've been very sort of fortuitous to have. And actually later in the conversation um, Andre himself talks about the importance of coincidence, and this was very much an instance of that. I mean, it was you know scanning through the quietest website, looking at a, a, an article on a, a re-release of a, a Swiss punk band called Growzone, and then thought, oh, I'll try and they, you know they sound interesting. I'll try and trace them them down a bit. Went through their record label, and then they put me onto uh, one of Andre's good friends, Lurker Lurker Grand, and he said um actually I'm not your man you want to speak to Andre Chan because uh yeah he's he's from the same he's old school punk and he'll uh, and he's, he'll have the stories and um and he certainly did and I, you know following up on that I kind of ended up on a uh, you know with a message of sort of few text messages with Andre and he said oh just give me a call will you which is quite unusual mm. and in this day and age most of it is emails and texts isn't it so yeah. I picked up the phone and it was one of those instant kind of connections where it just the conversation just felt so easy and and again it's something that Andre talks about those kind of unique friendships that you feel lucky to find in your life and it felt very much like this was one of those occasions and actually when we'd had the conversation and the conversation that you're going to hear on this episode i think both of us had a similar desire to get around a pub table with andre at some point and kind of develop that friendship hey eh?
0: oh i really hope that happens yeah what what a smashing guy and uh, yeah it was a, a, a real treat to speak to him but in a slight change to our usual format for the show we close out with three demos as well which and that they, they sort of take us through the conversation and mark key chapters in andre's creative life what what are your thoughts looking back at the conversation and kind of how that idea do you think that kind of came together
1: well one thing i was reflecting on today when i was listening to it again is that it wasn't till the very end that i started to consider the the sort of depth and interest of the actual stories about the music making because mm. some of the journey that andre takes us on is breathtaking in terms of his you know, documenting the Swiss punk scene, or his reflections on the lasting influence of punk, or politics and dark times in the eighties. It just kind of it ranges all over the place. And then, and then, I was like, oh, but we've got these three songs. You know, mm. starting starting with this one tape, one song that he doesn't even know the song title from his very first beginnings cassette recording in this um, in the, in the studio with his first sort of punk band. Oh, it's, yeah, it's, they're three brilliant stories, aren't they? And actually there's some really, it doesn't always happen for this podcast, which is about talking about demos and and music and stuff, but there's some really interesting musical stories about how these particular pieces of music developed um, and how they kind of landed with him and how they sit with him, you know, uh, at the end of making that music.
0: Yeah. It made me think about that idea of, um, um, if you are uh, somebody who makes music or has made music continuously, um, demo recordings, uh, especially when they're kind of raw and kind of home recordings and stuff as, as biographical kind of documents and playing them and then kind of revisiting them and timelining them is a really interesting exercise. And this having these three demos from Andre kind of made me want to, you know kind of do that with with other folks if that was ever possible to do that to do that again because you were asking people to talk about their lives through music and their music making and having a series of demos that sort of take you through that as stepping stones to to talking about their where they were in those particular situations i thought that worked really well i mean the, the 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 stuff that rose to the surface around the punk community in this conversation is really sterling stuff and that
1: Uh, It totally is. And, you know, and, um, and some of the stuff you just said, which links into the way that um, Andre talks to himself uh, about being an archaeologist and how that kind of links into his desire to, to document, you know, things and in this in this instance things that he's done in his life but also you know he has done with with his with his good friend lurker and various other people has done these series of of books exploring the swiss um, punk and new wave scenes and and when he talks about how they finally realized that this tiny well relatively tiny group of people Mm -hmm involved in that sort of first wave of punk scene how they created this enormous amount of stuff I and mean, he described it as such an exuberant productive and creative scene that they both of them having been involved in it were actually blown away by how much stuff they found posters and records and cassettes and clothes and all, all this stuff um I have, i've yet to actually see the book but i really want a copy of it because i bet it's <laughs> i bet it's an amazing piece of work
0: yeah he evokes that period and of really well in the conversation does he just make makes you want to be there and uh, experiencing that because it seems like really like a very fortunate place to be i mean they fought for what they had and what they created it
1: was you know well, they, literally, but... they literally did didn't they i mean they you know he talks there were he talks about the riots that you know it i mean it's interesting that he talks about the eighties is a period of dark times, you know, with, Mm -hmm. you know, and so it's easy. I mean, we did grow up in the eighties, so we did live through that stuff, but it's easy to forget about things like the threat of nuclear war that actually did exist as a real and present things in, you know, more, more or less in some people's lives and stuff. Um, Mm -hmm yeah so yeah stuff from dark times and then a very nice link to uh, later on in the conversation about about uh, the danger of making dark music for two for for long periods <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh i don't know if i totally agree with that but experience. well a huge huge thanks to andre for joining us on this show and thanks to to colleen Andre's wife, for her tech support during the recording um, and the internet um, in Wexford being less than uh, cooperative, let's say. Uh, If you're enjoying these podcasts, please do drop by Apple HQ and leave us a nice five-star review so more folks can find the
1: podcast. Yeah. Well, before we go over to the conversation, I just wanted to leave one sort of final point that Andre left with us. He said... You should primarily be totally interested in the world. And if you find something that interests you, then follow it. And I'm going to that's that's going to sit with me. I'm going to stay with that. So, um, yeah, listen to this conversation. Enjoy it. Episode 42 of Songs from a Padded Envelope with Andre
2: Chan. Well, my name is Andre. Uh, Last name is Chan. Very odd name. Everybody thinks I'm Chinese. I'm not. Um, but I only have one vowel in my name, last name at least. Um, I am 56 years of age at this point. Um, and trying to get old with dignity. And the emphasis is on the word trying. Um, so but no, uh, my history uh, grew up in Switzerland. However, my mum was from London, so all my vacations were spent in London, in England, and um, so I had uh, the dubious opportunity to get into the punk scene in 1978 as a 13-year-old, because uh, my cousins, you know, they took me down King's Road, very scary stuff and very exciting at the same point time, you know, and so. Got into the punk scene in, in Switzerland very early. A bunch of youngsters, we were, and um, stayed with punk until about 1983 and then totally got out of it and um, decided I had to do something with my life. Um, lived in South of France for a year, um, ended up back in Switzerland, became a computer programmer uh got bored uh, to tears with that uh decided to go to california for three months and came back to switzerland after 13 years Uh, in the meantime i had a degree from university so i got a degree in as an archaeologist anthropologist archaeologist and uh, returned to switzerland and had a mishap with a flu jab and um uh have uh i had for like two years uh acute vertigo uh including um the dentist drilled tinnitus in my head uh 24 hours now and lost my hearing and uh, so i couldn't work anymore on the profession then a couple of years later lurker came along and he said he wanted to do a book about uh, the early punk scene in switzerland and i said okay i'll be part of that um two years later we published a book and it got uh, uh, pr- uh, the prize from the government swiss government for the nicest swiss book 2006 an award uh, then we decided okay what about the 80s which in many countries were the most culturally significant years that decade was the signif- most significant decade Uh, musically, uh, culturally, socially, politically. And people said, you can't do a book like that. It's impossible. The magnitude of it is crazy. We did it. Eventually, it was sort of like that uh, stoic punk uh, attitude. If somebody tells you, you can't do it, so you go down to pub, have a couple of beers, and it's like, oh, if everybody says you can't do it, then let's do it, you know? So we did, and it turned out to be a 700-page book. Got, a, got an award as well. Uh, took us three years, and I was done with it at that, uh, at the end of that. Um, I didn't want to hear anything about music or culture or anything. So I went, I went off to Egypt for three weeks, which was full of culture, uh, just a, a lot older, um, but at least no music except, you know, those funny flutes and whatever, but, uh, that's a lot. And then we did a third one about uh, rock poster art from the sixties to, um, to, to, present in Switzerland. And that was the last project there, but I also had bands in the meantime. And, uh, me and Colleen, my wife, we, um, established a little record label where we exclusively only produce a hundred copies on vinyl. And um, that's that's our credo. Not, never more than a hundred, and when they're gone, they're gone. You know, that's that's basically what it is. So yes, now I've moved to Wexford because Switzerland was not conducive to our social security in terms of surviving, and we decided um, to uh, move to Ireland, um, for partly because it's a beautiful place. And I always said, I want to go return back to an ocean and, and be able to, to go out, you know, in, in a few couple of minutes, you're down uh, here in Wexford, you're down at the quay. And um, it's, it's just like, it gives you a lot of, if, if things try to, uh, try to close in on you and you stand at the ocean, it is a fantastic way to get perspective again. Because you've just got that huge dimension. Uh, You have got that huge, vast expanse where everything becomes small again. And it it sort of like, you know, fits again where it needs to fit, you know, the little things. Uh, They're not so paramount in your life anymore so yes um i think that's that was a very wise decision
1: (laughs) you've clearly had a very very rich and varied tapestry of a life and i think there's lots of stuff that we're going to go back and tap into across our conversation um yeah thanks for coming on the show when we first got in touch with you you wrote back saying that no doubt this would be a rare chance to send swiss music out into the world that simply doesn't bounce back or is blocked by the alps and we're definitely going to um to do that because unusually we're going to take a route away from our normal format on the show and we're going to take a look at three demos from across your life as a musician could you start by taking us back to a rehearsal room in lucerne in 1982 and tell us a bit about the first song that we're going to hear at the end of the show.
2: Yes, uh, the rehearsal room is called Saddle. It used to be the prison for the canton of Lucerne. Um, We wanted kind of have an autonomous space plus practice rooms. So we had a few demonstrations, riots basically, and uh, they gave it to us. Incidentally, right when we sort of announced we were gonna have a big demonstration and they got um, cold feet and they just gave the bloody place to us. So there's, there's like um, 50, 52 band rooms now in this old prison, huge prison. Uh, and um, we managed to get in there. However, we never actually had our own room. What it was is we always went like, you know, with other bands and promised them, oh, we're going to pay half the rent, which we never did. And so after one and a half years, they kicked us out after we were in like several different band rooms. We had a good reputation. They'll never bloody pay, so nobody wanted to take us on again. So by 1982, when this demo was made, we had this little tape recorder. You remember those 80s or 70s tape recorder with little built-in microphones? And we, um, we recorded this. Uh, And the singer was my best friend. Uh, He was an amazing guy. But uh, it was also a time where things were very nihilistic. It was the beginning of the 80s, you know, 1984, Orwell, that was all sort of in the back of our minds. You had the Pershing rockets, you had SS-20 rockets, you know, uh, nuclear rockets on on European soil, soil. You know imagine that and so it was a very dark period um that whole thing about no future really kind of resonated and then the first wave of hardcore punk came along and we bought into it uh, very much so uh and but we also realized by 83 we played our last show it was just sports i mean it was like uh, you know At some point you can play faster, at some point, you know, it was just physically extremely demanding and to what end, you know, somebody would come along, could play that one bit faster and was the better hardcore punk band. So at some point you just get to what is physically impossible and I thought it was a dead end. Um, Broke out of that whole thing. but and now i'm preempting things a little bit but this was uh, a recording uh on one of those lousy little 70s tape deck um i have no clue what the songs were called we were drinking a lot uh, in those days uh, that's that's where the rent went for the practice room basically but we did promise the guys that we would pay and the promise goes far you know sometimes <laughs>
0: So the, that that band was called Attacked Noise, is yeah, that right? Yeah, that's correct. What what kind of uh, shows did you do with Attacked Noise? Where were you playing? Uh,
2: on really horrible, um, what would you call it, high school parties. Um, at punk festivals, that was all right. Um, basically in school gyms, stuff like that. Because there were, there were no... It was one thing to have suddenly to be blessed with, like, practice facilities, practice rooms. It was another thing that there was no infrastructure for you to play anywhere. So, I mean, it was sort of a pointless thing for for a while there to practice and not be able to play because nobody wanted to play, uh, you know, put punk bands on um, or not, you know, not too many places took you on. And the few that did... um, it didn't do on a regular basis. Do you know what I mean? So you, you kind of got into a loop where you had to wait your slot. It got better then um, you know, as of like mid 80s, suddenly there were plenty of facilities and, and, and uh, you know, it just grew. The whole club culture grew and, and places to, for you to play were like, you know, sprouting left and right and alternative culture centres came up. Uh, that was a great thing. But in those days it also you have to understand, I mean, this was a prison and it still had to, in the beginning it still had the bars on the window. I mean, so so you got this so-called free space and you open the window and you got the prison bars there. I mean, it was sort of like a rather bizarre it was a bizarre constellation to say the least. Um plus right next door it was it's in the middle of nowhere, kinda. Um but right next door, you had a farmer and we always sort of like got into trouble with the farmer because we kind of wanted to open the windows and the farmer and his cows just didn't appreciate what, what music we did. (laughs) And so he would come over and raise hell because he said the milk went sour and uh, all sorts of like,
1: (laughs) he changed his milk (laughs) sour.
2: And and we're like, Oh, what kind of art? Um, You know, he didn't understand our art. I mean, what a fool, you know, but no, I mean, those were great times, but they were also very dark times, to be honest. I mean, you know, like it wasn't, that everybody has like this vision of the 80s as being such a glorious period, you know, with like all sorts of great music, great bands, great shows, and all that kind of stuff. But on average, daily life was either you had like euphoria or you were like super depressed, you know, it was like these huge roller coaster waves. Uh, I remember the early 80s as being a pretty bleak and depressing and nihilistic period um with great music don't get me wrong and great bands and all kinds of stuff but for most part i mean also being a teenager i mean you know you might be a bit more susceptible to to that darkness within
1: i love i love the story about the about the right the riots and the protests and how that came together to you know to to bring this band of musicians and and get this place for that became yours and that, that, you know, checking out the website and the history of it, that is still running to this day. It's still, is is it still thriving as a, as a music um, play music, sort of cultural music center for people? Yeah,
2: it's still, um, uh, it's actually internationally renowned now, particularly in the punk circuit um, on on the punk for the punk bands. Um, We incidentally played uh, last February, Shortly before the the lockdowns and the pandemic really hit, we played a support act for the UK subs uh, at that place, sold out. And it it was fantastic, but it was like to celebrate 40 years of brand new age, the album, the second album by the UK subs. And I actually went up to Martin Gersey, who runs these shows um, and is like a punk from the early days. I was in a band with him. Uh, very early on actually he was the original singer for attic noise but um, when we had to do an audition he uh, froze at the microphone and so then my mate came and he just like went crazy in that microphone and so it was obvious who we're going to take now martin has himself with his band moped lads he's he's got um, he's kind of famous all over the world now too so i mean you know that, which which is great, but he organizes these shows and his little address book has like every punk rocker that's ever been on a stage in his address book. I mean, his address book is worth a fortune just for all the contact details. But um, no, he's a great friend, and uh, so I went up to him and said, "Look, Martin this is a bit bizarre. I mean, this album came out in 1980, and we went to the UK sub show in Zurich, and it was called Brand New Age, and right." You know, uh, right then we, the riots had started and it was a brand new age. And the brand new age started. I mean, it was a prophetic title. And so, 40 years later, being able to play support act, I mean, it was only our fourth show, to be honest. And he's got a huge list of people that want to play support act for punk bands in the saddle. But he took us because he said, look, this will be the best fit because you guys play this vintage punk stuff. And so I went up to him and said, "Look, Martin, this is bizarre. I mean, now 40 years later, in celebration of brand new age, UK subs are playing, playing the entire album, and we already knew that there was something going on with with this COVID stuff. And I, I told him, um, could it be that this is going to be an, another prophetic title? Uh, you know, with you know, and a month later, we were in lockdown. I mean, so." Believe me, the UK subs have had always <laughs> sort of like defined when the brand new age was going to come. And it, it's, it was in the 80s, beginning of the 80s, and now it's in the beginning in 2020. They they sort of like already had it um, spelled out. So the 20s are going to be an interesting brand new age. Going back and playing um,
0: in Settle uh, after, after all that time, how, how was it for you making music in that space again? <laughs>
2: um yeah now you you, you're tapping into something that is a really interesting concept and that is nostalgia um being an archaeologist i i i sort of i'm uh, you know averse to nostalgia because i mean you can very quickly fall in love with a bunch of old stones somewhere in the middle of wiltshire or somewhere um and sort of like oh my you know i want to be here on you know the summer solstice or whatever but uh no, long story short i mean i i think it was it was amazing because a lot of my old friends had, who i haven't seen in literally decades were there and it was great but it also showed to me a lot of these people never left see and that was a, an interesting development it's like wow it It was like a continuous, a a total cultural continuity. It was just I came from outside and these people were still all there, which is great in one way. And it was a bit sort of like, what did you do for the last 40 years with your life? I mean, where did you go? Did you do anything? I mean, you know, and then it turns out they more or less stayed, I um, got married, ha- had a couple of kids, which is all fine, but they never really ventured anywhere, you know, neither mentally nor physically. Uh, and that was a little bit more frustrating in the end. Um, that was a sort of a frustrating aspect of it. Uh, playing for the UK subs was one of my hi- the highlights, one of truly one of the highlights in my life. I mean, because these guys are so nice um they are so on top of it and what what uh, what uh, you know what a great life if you can be 75 charlie harper and be on stage and still sing songs you know and the songs still have meaning you know and there's still and there's young kids in the audience 16 or something singing your songs (laughs) Amazing. amazing i'm I'm
1: wondering for you, in terms of the song that you sent us over, Andre, that you when you described it as a historical document, I'm wondering when you put that on and listen to that, what does it how what effect does it have on you listening to to attack by noise?
2: Um okay the problem with the, with listening to that is i hear my best friend's voice and my best friend mm. 6 years later he committed suicide uh, with a, such a massive overdose uh, on heroin of heroin that it would have killed an elephant okay so it was definitely suicide um drugs were, were a big problem coming out of that punk scene because heroin was flooding the market at that time in Switzerland, uh, you may you may um, you may have seen pi- pictures from uh, in Zurich uh, when they called it Needle Park. Um, mm, yeah. It was sort of the, the herring capital of of Europe. Where definitely, people came from all over to just you know shoot up. In uh, with with all its uh, horrors, uh, one guy overdosed in a tree. And was hanging in a tree for three days. All right, rotting away. Uh, nobody noticed. You know, it was, it was, it, was a, it was a harsh time. It was a harsh time with regards to drugs. And uh, uh, unfortunately, Stöpsel, the singer, he he had sort of like he was always searching for something, and he had no limits. I mean, it was it was a friendship. You know, in life, you sometimes come across a friendship. Or you have a friendship with somebody where you don't really have to talk with the person anymore. You know what the other guy thinks, all right? So you can preempt a little bit the answer or whatever. You know, these kind of friendships are super rare. So when I listen to this track, yes, it is historical, uh, but it's also sort of like it's it's it still hurts to say the least. Um, I do miss him a lot um, at times, but I. I go to shows, concerts, and I sort of catch myself more often than not saying oh that that would have been a band that Stöpsel would have liked, yeah, so he's still there, you know? yeah
0: prior to um being in that band and 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 uh, getting involved with music at, at Settle, what what had led you to being in a band in the first place and making music?
2: Uh, sheer poorten. <laughs> Uh, okay, so I, I, I told you before that my mom's from London, and all of the vacations we took, we went to England, plus minus, uh, the, the odd occasional South of France trip with my dad to go see Old Stones. And all we wanted to do is go to the beach, you know, me and my brother. Mm. And my dad would schlep us, all, uh, schlep us to these like Roman amphitheatres and God knows what. And we wanted to go to the beach, and by the time we got to the beach, it rained. All right. So, um, you know, that's where the archaeologists came in, But uh, no. uh, (laughs) Yeah, sorry. I mean, but uh, so when we went to England, um, uh, we, you know, we were exposed to what what was London at the time? 10 million people, uh, you know, a a, a mega city. I mean, one of the big urban centers of of the world at the time in in the 60s and 70s. Um, and then coming back to a little village of 5,000 people, yeah, um, struggle. Uh, where, where, you yeah. know, you, you do something, uh, you, you kind of pull a prank, and the next day the whole village says it was you, just because you wore a leather jacket, you know what I mean? So, yeah, the, the tongues were wagging. But uh, what it was, it, it was an escape, a form of escape, pure escapism, really, and also the, the invitation that was given by punk to say, look, you don't have to go and learn an instrument for like 200 years or something. Um, you pick it up and you figure it out. And so the first show I ever played was with a school band. We were about 16 and we called ourselves the Dogs of War you know, 16-year-olds, dogs of war. Um, uh, So knowing nothing about the world, really. But uh, And we played. And so I played guitar, and there was a second band. We were were like sort of the same members in two different bands, plus, minus, uh, just different singers. And in one band, I played bass. In the other play, uh, I played the guitar. And I couldn't play guitar, really. So I was totally confused with these six strings. So what I realized is I only need the top two, you know, um, and that I took all the others off because they only made strange noises, uh, and
0: <laughs> it's... I
2: only just played with the top two strings, and it it was good punk. I mean, it was school school band punk. Um, you know,
1: I think it's the best place to start. Two strings, best place to start. There you yeah, go. I mean...
2: You don't need you don't need more. You know, <laughs> otherwise you sound like the Beatles.
1: <laughs> um Andre you earlier on in the very beginning of the show you were talking about being 13 years old and being in UK and coming across punk I'm just wondering what that was what the first instance of, of that was for you and why what you, what you know how did it feel like what were your reflections on that
2: Well the, the first instance actually was still in Switzerland because we had this uh slightly older guy in our village um he he was like 3 years older than we were and he we called him the proto punk uh, of our village uh, he, he just it and he went to he went to high school already and we we were like far from it um, but he he was the first one to have like the nevermind the bollocks album and he was this tall lanky fella uh, daniel daniel schenk was his name and he could drive uh, so w- what happened was he he drove to Zurich to get all these punk records, brought them back, took a big bloody magic marker and put DS for Daniel Schenk on, on the albums, which ruined their value in retrospect, okay? okay? But uh, this way, the, those records just went through the village, okay? And that was the first exposure. So uh, m- my brother's five years older and he listened to this, terrible, terrible hard rock nonsense like Nasareff and Uriah Heap and Led Zeppelin and all that. Um, I was into glam rock. I liked, you know, as a little nipper, I liked um, uh, Slade and Sweet and Roxy music and I liked uh, David Bowie and I liked um, Susie Quattro was my very first single I bought, 48 Crash. I mean, amazing. Uh, So I like that stuff, and I never liked that hard rock stuff. I thought it was kind of lame and poser stuff, really. You know? mm-hmm. So when I managed to get my hands on that copy uh, with the big fat letters on it, "D.S." of the sex pieces, I put it on, and I actually put the B-side on first, if I recall correctly, with Holidays in the Sun. And after 20 seconds, I called the devil. And said listen i'm going to sign the contract for rock and roll for the rest of my life i signed it 10 times all right um but i i sort of like i I can't tell you what what the price is they're going to have to pay but it it was worth it up till now
0: (laughs) that's fantastic what a what a wonderful way of 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 putting it i love the idea of those records being passed around your village yeah, totally. Yeah. How, how many sets of hands do you think those records went through?
2: Oh, about uh, for, for a village of uh, only about 5,000 people, um, I think 23 people t- went into punk and wave. I mean, this guy converted 23 people. I mean, that's amazing. That's more, uh, well, not quite the level of a te- tele-evangelist, but, you know, at least 23 uh, saw the light, you know.
0: Or heard? The... Were you able? To... Yeah. Sorry, Andre. Go or, ahead. Or
2: at least heard the gospel. Yeah,
0: yeah, the gospel according to John. Yeah.
2: John Lydon. <laughs> um,
0: were you were uh, were you able to um, get out to any shows? You, you were talking about that the, there weren't many places for you to play, but were you able to get to see any show, punk shows?
2: Yeah, um, and that's again because of Daniel. He he was older and he already could drive a car. And all the shows on average were in Zurich at the time, uh, or then maybe in, uh, in Biel, uh, Bien, uh, you know, in the French part of Switzerland, there were some good shows. But he would drive there, and that allowed us to, to see all these shows that otherwise I wouldn't have stood a chance flat out. Um, so I got to see, and you know, the, the plight of Swiss bands has always been that they have to be support act for international act with usually lousy sound checks, if you're lucky, you get one. Um, The international band will inadvertently have their own mixer, you know, the mixing desk guy, and he will definitely make sure that the Swiss band sounds like shite uh, so that the international band, as crap as they are, sounds a lot better, you know, in any case. Uh, And so as a consequence And you didn't get paid much either. Um, But as a consequence, you got to see a lot of Swiss punk bands. And then there was this big famous festival in 1979 uh, in November, second and third of November. Um, I'm an archaeologist, I did tell you, so dates and places stay with me a little bit. And that was the first Swiss punk festival. It was a two-day festival festival. It was my first punk show I ever saw. My very first rock show was seeing Queen in 1978. Um, in retrospect, that's all right. Uh, back then, I thought like, yeah, okay, it's all right. But uh, no, and then that was my first exposure to punk concerts. That was in November 79, where I actually went to that festival. Friends of mine didn't dare go in. They were scared. Um and I thought, like, no, that's that's fantastic. Uh, and two days just of sheer unadulterated mayhem. It was brilliant. Um,
0: <laughs>
2: there's actually a good, there's a good book out there. I can't, I can't tell you the author right now off the top of my head, but it's called My First Time, and it's nothing other than some more famous people, some like absolute, you know joe schmoes who write about their first punk show that they went to and it's a great book because you you realize what it was that took yourself in you know what it was and one guy describes i think a show in in dc where he was absolutely mortified and at the same time absolutely euphoric I mean, it was like, it was the bizarrest experience, he writes. It it, it was like he never experienced anything like it again thereafter. Mm -hmm. And that is exactly what it was. It was like, wow, what the energy, the sheer amount of energy that was frightening and exhilarating at the same time was just mind boggling. But great stuff, Mm -hmm. you know, really great stuff you were talking earlier
1: about your you know you playing an important role in documenting the swiss punk and the new wave mm-hmm. scenes so your love of of the sort of swiss punk scene started at that festival how um I mean, how important was it for you to kind of write and reflect on that when you put the books together with lurker
2: well we did we took a different approach we didn't say look we want to go into the analysis of this stuff uh we were much more interested in archiving and documenting it, because it was just completely... In Switzerland, there's, there's a famous song, and that's by a band called TNT, and it's Zürich Brundt, like uh, Zurich is Burning. It became the anthem for all the riots, in, uh, in the youth riots in the early 80s. And we we realized that in Switzerland, nobody knew that the punk scene started already in 1976. Okay, that's even before my time. Before I got into now, the interesting aspect about that was we then discovered that by the definition punk, as it was then, you know, by Lex McNeil with his magazine in New York, and then later on with uh, Malcolm McLaren in London, um, that Switzerland was actually deferred worldwide to have an active punk scene. And part of it is because Switzerland has a lot of international stuff going on, particularly in Geneva, and um, also some rich kids. I mean, Jack and the Rippers, for example, they are Habsburgians. Uh, There is sort of like colloquial knowledge that they drove to their shows in Jaguars okay um the bastards uh, he was like he w- the sandro sursock he was married to a princess of thailand or something or what somewhere down there um they hung around with the rolling stones you know about play punk amazing uh, amazing single too they put a, the bastards uh, they were a fantastic scene i don't even have it but i also don't want to spend three four hundred francs for it uh, because the music is available but um yeah so so for us it was mostly the idea was let's let's document this for the first time uh and what we did is we contacted all our old connections all our old friends um and par- partially depended on the snowball system because you kind of were like in a situation where like okay what's happened to this chap Uh, and and somebody would know oh he's still around but he's there and there now and whatever and so we managed to get the whole troop together more or less um, because a lot of them had died uh, or went mental or something because it was a radical scene and it attracted radical people uh, that Mm. clearly were not fit for uh you know your general society or whatever malcontents i guess well, it would be would be a good expression for it but all very likable characters do you know what i mean uh, but they just you know mm-hmm. so- society was a challenge for them and what what happened was um we managed to do that and we discovered there were only about 400 punks in that early phase and then a, a few you know brothers and sisters and uh, sympathizers and and whatnot um but when you when we saw all the material, the fan scenes, the records, the tapes, the, the posters, the, 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 the own clothes that were made, you would think it was ten there were ten thousand people, you know, must have been involved. It was it was such an exuberant productive creative scene, um with without mobile phones you know you had to actually pick up a phone and dial you know and stuff and it was just amazing how that and uh, how a, a complete underground network through fanzines and uh, all all these different means of uh, exchanging information happen uh, it it was just abs- we were astonished when we put this book together we were absolutely blown away at the creativity and parts of it we didn't know i mean the french part was a little bit insular um there was some exchange with the swiss german part but not that much um and certainly not when it, on, none that i was aware of aside from the records that came from there um so it, it was a very very uh re- for us too very revealing uh, for lurker and me, um, uh, very revealing as to what some creative people and the right uh, spot, right time, what you can do as human beings. You don't need a lot of people. I mean, it's just amazing. Yeah, you, know, you go out, you start something, and and it takes off. I mean, okay, we were we were being fed by uh, steadily fed, of course, by the American and um, UK punk scene. Um, and the Clash, the Clash played in Zurich in 1st of October 1977. Um, but uh, there are live recordings. But they played—they were so scared of the Swiss punks, they played just songs like Double Speed. So on the live recording, you hear versions of songs, Clash songs, that have never been played ever since then at that breakneck speed, because they wanted to get the hell out. <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs>
0: <laughs> um, oh, it paints such an evocative picture and I, I sort of I want to be there the way you talk about it I want to be there and experience that kind of culture uh, and the, the impact of of punk rock music on a group of people and just seeing that explosion of creativity and camaraderie and 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 uh, uh, the, the just sort of creative outpouring what do you think the the lasting influence of punk And the DIY culture has been for you and for for people in that scene you just
2: described. Uh, Okay, what a cliche! I'm gonna I'm gonna serve you a big cliche now. Once a punk, always a punk. All right. Um, Now, what what did punk do to me? Um, Quoting uh, quoting the Clash here. um, Back in the garage with my bullshit detector okay and that bullshit that bullshit detector was a, a key element that, that that lasted throughout my life uh, up till now um if somebody says this is green and the other person says this is red well what am i supposed to do i mean this is a binary sort of like i, I don't like binary things i don't like black and white i don't like um either or i mean and it, this is very very frustrating to me um, how for example now just you know being very conscious of watching the news and and uh, all that kind of stuff mm. I mean why should I be either or I mean are there options to be some of that and some of the other now to be absolutely honest, I am completely Against right wing stuff, I don't understand right wing stuff. That 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 makes no sense to me because it's like you're looking at the world with the back against your against the wall. Okay, so you only have one vision forward. Okay, uh, and the radical left, in all honesty, is a little bit the same. I mean, they're just standing on the other side of the of the same room with their backs against the wall. But there's a good sort of like center ground where you can say, okay, look um we all have to get along somehow and that's not a hippie thing or something but i think the main problem with these days is that pretty people don't think critically enough anymore to say like okay should i now be for the palestinians against israel or for israel against the palestinians It's not that, it's in the end, it's human beings. Um, I've met young people in Tel Aviv, um, fantastic place, uh, because I wanted to go see uh, Jaffa, you know, 6,000 years of culture interested me and Tel Aviv of course is part, Jaffa is at the end of Tel Aviv, the beach. Uh, And these young people, uh, they said, look, we don't give a damn about religion. We don't give a damn about politics. We just want to live like you. Okay, this is after a bunch of vodka shots. And Colleen doesn't drink vodka, so I had to drink two every time. And they were very generous. (laughs) But she did carry me back into the hotel or at least guided me. But uh, no, and, and that was a very frustrating experience because, I mean, you suddenly find yourself in a position where somebody says you're privileged okay we want to be like you to have all the freedoms in the world to travel wherever you want to go to do whatever you want to do without sort of like a context that sort of prohibits you from doing so so you see what do you do now i mean do you side with these people when when rockets come from from the gaza strip or do you side with the palestinians who who are oppressed, um, there's no other way to say it, um, mm-hmm. so see, that's what punk, now here, here punk helps me, because I say, okay, look, it's not about the leaders, it's not about the ideologies that, that these guys have, what is, what What does it mean for the people, what does it mean for the people mm-hmm. on the ground to be in the Gaza Strip, not knowing if a rocket's going to hit your house, okay? Mm. What is it like for being in Israel somewhere and rockets hitting you um, from the Gaza Strip? I mean, what does it mean for the people? When the people buy into the ideology, this thing will go on forever, all right? Yeah. And it's been going on for the last six, 7,000 years in that area. They've been clobbering each other, every, you know, one one tribe comes and clobbers the next one, the next tribe comes and clobbers them, all right? So I'm like, look people why don't you sort of think about we are all human beings in the end the key issue is look we only got this one planet and we need to get along for crying out loud all right my, my problem is that particularly from the right side came this like very very strong martial language okay um militaristic language so for example what what does that mean in america now you got a situation where uh the democrats are not the political opponent anymore but they're the enemy okay and an enemy is that that comes from military okay i'm terribly sorry uh the thing about punk and what it has left me with or the legacy of punk is um I've met some of the most, some of the best people I've ever met in my life through, uh, through punk rock. I mean, flat out. And the, the, you know, proof in the pudding, I'm with you guys here uh, on, on your podcast, you know. And that is also, again, the, the small little group of punks. And I'm now on an international podcast out of North Wales and London. Um, who would have known? You know, it's it's what what punk allowed me also is to totally trust one thing more than anything else. And that is coincidence. Coincidence has been my best friend in my life. Seriously. However, coincidence doesn't come and knock on your door. You kind of have to go out and do something for it. All right. So so that's really and the other thing is that, so like I said before, the bullshit bullshit detector. So you you kind of sort of like get you you hopefully very quickly understand what is nonsense and what is idle po- uh, politician talk. I mean, the the way the politicians talk, particularly in England nowadays. I mean, I I, I am I, I do follow. English politics and Channel 4 news. Some people would argue that's very biased as well, but at least they are in the face of the politicians. And the way they get around every question is mm. an art form now. I mean, it is amazing. Um, they probably always did, but I'm very conscious of it nowadays because, I mean, the spin on everything is amazing. And in the end, you feel guilty, like it's your fault. Mm. Um, you know, and a lot of people i think a lot of people get that impression oh look there's nothing I can do anyway do you know what i mean uh, yes there's always something you can do you know keep keep the spirit going i mean you know the punk punk is a spirit it's it's a that do yourself spirit mm. and that's what it is and it's it's like it's not taking signs it's not being like in America democrat or um a republican that's daft i mean you know and they're not enemies it's like The Democrats that we think are like more like left leaning in America, when they checked on like Hillary Clinton's campaign, she was more conservative than Sarkozy in France at the time, her her attitude. So you, you have to develop a skill and punk definitely is a skill or gave me a skill to look at things in a more refined way. If something interests you, go deep, look into it don't take the slogans for granted. Slogans are great. You know, Um, Colleen and I are just giving out, um, putting out our new album. um, And we were looking for a title and we came up with the absolute best title that we think currently living in the 21st century or in 2021. um, And the album title is subject to availability. Because that's what our life is now. You're going to get the Pfizer Moderna uh, AstraZeneca subject to availability. Mm-hmm. Life has become subject to availability. You know That's modern life. You mm-hmm. either can tap into it, or you will not get that brand- new Japanese plastic gadget from Aldi on Thursday mornings. Mm-hmm. You know It was subject to availability. That's what life is, and we we figured that that is a good way to say, "God, everything is so bloody conditional now, you know um, make plans and don't forget to make plans because plans are important, even though they may not happen on that given day because a pandemic is hitting you or something is going wrong. Still keep making these plans because once you give up making those plans, you've lost. You've given up, you know, you've resigned. Um, Now, it is strenuous. And like I said before, I'm I'm 56 years old. I've got a a couple of health issues that are really quite uh, debilitating at times. But um, it is still a hell of a lot of fun to get up in the morning and to experience life because the alternative, as simple as it is, is death. That's pretty boring, probably. Uh, god knows what 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 comes after but you know with my luck i'm probably going to be born as a seagull with a fish allergy or something (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Uh, andre
1: andre i I so love how you've articulated that the lasting influence of punk and not Mm. just not just from from a musical perspective but just in terms of that the absorption of the sort of positivity and the, the the possibility, and that I think the way that you sort of described how the minute that you put on tunnel vision and box yourself box yourself into a corner, that's that's losing it completely, isn't it? And like mm-hmm. the the keeping an open mind, keeping the, the that sense of possibility going. It's, uh, uh, I just love what you've
2: had to say about that. Completely. Well, I mean, you guys are doing it. For, for all intents and purposes, guys, what you are doing right now with your podcast, that is as creative as anything that punk has ever done. All right. Um, you are living it. You, you are representative of exactly that creative spirit. And, and that's what I, I mean. Look, I have admiration for what you guys are doing because, I mean, you're running this podcast. It's a logistical nightmare with the Wi-Fi system I have here. Um, but, you know, it, it's somehow working out. And hopefully you are having fun. That's the one important thing, too. Punk was always about fun. Um, I was always into the fun element of punk. I thought punk was, was great. And one of my favorite bands were The Damned you know I mean <laughs> Captain Sensible what a riot I mean the guy is, is hilarious um, and he's he's you know it, it's just what it. rock and roll should be fun you know punk should be fun um, if you take stuff too seriously yes you can get lost um, but you should never but you should be primarily totally interested in the world because the world has so much to give I mean I love I love art I love um, books um, I'm not too f- versed on um, on theatre for example but I, when I see something that interests me I just go crazy on the internet or or start talking to people and I want to learn stuff ne- always be like interested that that's the key and that was punk punk really gave you that. Um, most of the people that I, I uh, you know that came out of that early punk scene in Switzerland, they are still with it and are interested in it. you know they 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 enjoy life, they are interested. they they go out and um, explore things, you know, and still we all love this common language we have is the music. We come back to the UK sub show. You know, we all congregate there again, and then we talk a little bit. But like I said, some people then got a little bit stuck in their routines, in their lives, but still, we can still laugh about some hilarious stories in the past. That's good enough for me at times, you know. Um, I've discovered that my brain probably lacks the capacity to store enough memories Um, And so it's actually all right. Um, Coming back to that UK sub show, it was also funny to hear stories where I was involved that I completely have forgotten. So my archive are all my breath friends from uh, from those early days that still have memories that work. So that's actually all right. (laughs) Um, So I don't have to remember it. Other people do it for me. Um, That's great. Outsourcing your memories. What a great idea.
0: (laughs) I love that. I'm I'm also really resisting the urge to to take a dive, like to just diverge off into a conversation about the damned because uh, I love the damned and uh, Mm -hmm. there's, there's so much to be, I mean, yeah, I'm. I'm, re- I'm going to resist it, but it's a conversation I'd, I'd love. To, I'd love to have with you, Andre. Uh, blimey, uh, yes. But thinking about um, you were talking about um, your your new music, and maybe maybe it's an opportunity to just sort of fast forward through to um, the second track that you sent across to us, um, the the peg track, Violet and Eve. Could you could you tell us a little bit about? Um, about that song and 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 the description you sent over about going super dark and and how you and low with that music how did that transformation come about creatively speaking
2: um a, a friend of mine um who I, I didn't know until about 15 years ago I, I met him through um his girlfriend um and incidentally i call him Chuck. uh there's a story to it at a at a book vernissage for Hot Love in Geneva, and uh, Poubelle, uh, French punk. Uh, Poubelle translates to garbage can. Uh, he couldn't remember Daniel's name, and he called him Jack. And from then on, I call him Jack now too. Uh, so uh, Jack and Jack was in a Sort of proto early punk band, but they never got out of the, the the basement basically. And he came from a very remote area in Switzerland, in the east part of Switzerland. So he and his mate, they were the only punks in the village, literally um, a force of two, you know, but to be reckoned with. Uh, and we talked at one of the birthday parties of his girlfriend. We talked about, oh, why don't we do a band and and whatnot and. I finally coerced him <laughs> to commit to uh, because he said he played bass, uh, which he sort of did, but not really. Uh, by the end of Peg, he could play bass. Now he actually also plays guitar and quite well at that. Um, and he's got a he's got his own project now. Uh, it's called Winter Haven, uh, and it's um, sort of a post punk uh, band. Uh, we, we were both, we, we are both huge chameleons fans, uh, the, the band from Manchester. And he, um, he sort of missed a few big bands uh, out of the early post punk scene. That was my escape. I was, I was always a cure fan, um, from the early days. And I've seen him about 15 times in overall over the last 40 years. Uh, and I stuck it out, uh, out with post-punk. I thought post-punk was very interesting. There, there were a lot of new ideas in there. And I I also got into the first wave of, of Gothic rock, you know, with Bauhaus yeah. and and Sisters of Mercy. Uh, also, absolutely, you know, alternatives, you know, music, musical alternatives to, you know, that also sort of speak to you, you know, be broader. Uh, uh, broad-minded actually and we decided oh, let's do something post punky uh, I was never in all honesty and you know I'm going to be crucified for this one I was never ever the biggest Joy Division fan uh, I thought I understood what it was all about and there's two or three songs that I think are just absolute magic all right, but i couldn't i couldn't connect to a full album subsequent pleasures i can't it's not an album i can there's good stuff on it but you know there's also not so good stuff that i don't necessarily like uh, but that's my preference and uh, but so we thought like okay let's do a post-punk band in the veins of like i said Chameleons, something along those lines and colleen uh, she's actually a multi-instrument, multi-instrumentalist. And she uh, said, okay, she'll play guitar, but she won't sing. Uh, she sings on MGY, my current project. Uh, well, we've been around for a while, actually. And so we started up and Jack learned to bass. And we had this friend who, incidentally, is like fully tattooed, fantastic tattoos, uh, Sasha. And Sash, he had a motorbike accident and he broke his neck. And so he can't really lift his neck. And it just looked really quite dramatic when he was at the microphone on top of it. I mean, you know, it's like this guy that, uh, and he went to an American school. So his English was absolutely flawless. And he's got sort of like these nihilistic lyrics but at some point, right in the beginning, I sort of, we drank a lot. Let's put it that way. Um, I sort of said to the guys, hey, look, guys, you know, you have to be a bit careful. This dark stuff can really take you down. I mean, you know, it's, uh, are are we ready to go and commit to this? Because none of the songs were happy. We have one song that was happy and it was my favorite song to play. Let's put it that way. But it was, it was pretty um, the lyrics were abysmal again in terms of like human misery. But um, no, and then uh, this particular song was sort of, that, that was a revelation for me because I, I the chorus sounds to me like the Supremes. There's something in that chorus that always sounded like when you listen to it, it sounds like a Supreme song from the 60s and i can't i have still to this day don't know which one it would be because i've tried to figure it out but it just sounds like a phil spectra song or something um at the same time it is dark as hell and we couldn't have come up with a title so i had these two little pedals and one was called violet and the other one was called eve and so we called the song "Violet and Eve," and he wrote the lyrics to "Violet and Eve." Um, and because for him the word "violet" was close enough to "violent," and uh, so it's 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 like it's like these coincidences that then led to this song. And it, uh, I love that song, and I wish we would have recorded it in the studio. We put a single out with two other songs. Um, but uh, this particular song, I always thought like, wow, um, there's something to that one. Um, it is, It kind of pulls you down, and yet that, that Supreme's chorus, um, at least the way I hear it, that Supreme-sounding Phil Spector chorus, uh, it was just sort of a, a real sort of mind-boggling song really
1: i don't necessarily want to sully the the idea of the band with you know sort of success and that but what what we hoped for the band when you when you brought it together and made the single what did you want to happen uh
2: what we wanted to do is sort of like be a complete and utter contrast to all this sort of like mainstream frigging nonsense that was playing was being played on the radio at the time Everybody sort of like happy days whatever edge herein was coming along and i'm like well, wow. you know and we wanted to be the absolute triumph antidote to all of that but the fact is you you will discover that some of these bands that went really dark they never lasted that long okay, The Cure being an exception maybe, mm. but even Susie and the Banshees turned, you know and the Sisters of Mercy imploded after the first album, Do you know it's you can't keep it up you just flat out can't keep that, that every Friday night and spending four hours in the practice room or more and playing like nothing but more or less minor chords it will be it will get to you. It will get to you after a while. Um, there was also that thing with the drummer and the drum machine. The drum machine is so clinic, clinical, you know, in its precision, and which is great. You know, y- y- you can't sort of cheat um, with a live drummer. You can kind of look over to the guy and say, "Hey, look, I'm not keeping up anymore here." Uh, that that was helpful in a hardcore punk band. Um, but uh, no it, it was it was an amazing band it was an amazing experience and um, by all means I mean if you're interested we got like uh, set recordings I can I can send them over to you one day if you're interested in listening to it uh, it was it was a great experience it was also uh, another reflection where my understanding of a band is not too necessarily make music my uh, it's it's to get four or five people into a practice room for a few hours and make sure that nobody kills each other you know that everybody walks out alive really at the end of it because um the band dynamics can be tremendous at times you know the it, it can be artistic but it can also be sort of like you it is very personal to be in a small space and making music which only exists in your head translating it into the real world and you hear something and somebody else hears something else and you know it's it's not that you get it's not about being possessive about your ideas it's about sort of like the intimacy of that small space and five guys or whatever being in that small space Confined. Usually, it's like an air raid shelter in Switzerland because every other house has an air raid shelter. So mm. uh, I guess the Swiss were paranoid uh, after the Second World War. But um, in this airtight air, air air raid shelter, and you're kind of like doing this kind of this kind of music. It is. It can be a challenge. It can be a challenge. Uh, we're still friends. I mean, don't get me wrong, but uh, um, my health took a turn for the worst. Uh, for the worse, and I organized this big festival with our label, and it was a label night and I was depending on another guy, not from the band, another guy to help out, and he totally let me, I had to organize everything myself in the end and play in two bands that evening and that was it I I couldn't deal with it anymore I had to, uh, my health was shot, okay, I mean I was mentally mentally halfway stable but my physical health was just gone and i had to stop and so that's that was partially the band breakup was um was definitely on my behalf where i just had to say look i have to keep my sanity and and stay with it you know and then i joined winterhaven we made a few demos um, quite interesting stuff actually i um, also like that but
1: just to just to tap into the end of the band you were Talk. I mean, you sent in the notes you sent over. You said that the, the finale of the band was uh, was playing out to a four
2: hundred and fifty capacity sold out show. That was that festival, yeah, uh, that was that festival we organised, and um, it it was actually the only proper show we played. I mean you know taking you know taking inspiration from the Sisters of Mercy first and last and always, we mm. really did it <laughs> and um, I, still to this day to, to this day, people come up and say, You know, Andre, that show that you played with that other band. God, that was the most depressing thing I've ever heard in my whole life, <laughs> and and I take it as a compliment. Absolutely, to you <laughs> because, absolutely. You, you you have to kind of go like, oh yeah, terribly sorry. <laughs> no, I'm not. No. <laughs>
0: uh, I'm I'm also now resisting the urge to talk about the first Sisters of Mercy album as well because those early sisters, <laughs> those early Sisters records were absolutely blinding <clears throat> and still yeah. like, not, like nothing else and influenced so much. But like like nothing else, yeah. I, I love that stuff, yeah. and I know you do too, as
2: as well, Ben.
1: I, I do, I do actually, mate. Honestly, I really do.
2: There's an interesting tangent on this one. Um, you know, death metal, mm. as as you know, as a genre. Um, well, the the band that actually invented that plus minus was a Swiss band called Celtic Frost. Okay. When they got started, the reason why it all took off for them was after seeing the Sisters of Mercy at the same show I was, okay? Uh, And they took that whole darkness and invented, I mean, they were always into metal, but they kind of invented that really slow, gloomy death metal. Um, so you, you got other bands like Young God out of Switzerland that more or less are, you know, the the, the sort of like originators for uh, industrial music, you know, with samplings.
0: Incredibly underrated. Young the Young Gods stuff is is incredibly underrated for its the way it kind of uh, the, the use of sampling. Um, uh, the, the the those first two Young Gods records are in, uh, are incredible. Uh, really groundbreaking use of technology and stuff. Uh, not to mention having one of the greatest drummers I've ever seen live is astonishing.
2: Yeah, and aside from Bernard, super nice guy. If you ever get the chance to meet Franz, the singer, um God, you you, you go like, this is impossible. This is one of the nicest guys you ever meet. Uh, amazing, amazing. And you know, Franz is actually an amazing guitar player all right, Uh, that nobody really realizes that. He actually won, uh, I think he he came in second in some kind of youth contest, European youth contest for Spanish guitar for classical guitar play. Really? So, you know, but that gives you an idea why the music is so interesting because he has a very good understanding of music, you know, so. Yeah, he's a man I'd love to speak
0: to. That TV Sky record still blows me away. It's amazing i'm going to resist that rabbit hole as well. <laughs> <laughs> Should, could, could, well
1: well whilst you're resisting that steve yes shall we shall we move on to the final song that we're going to talk about andre which yeah. is going to which is going to bring things right up to date uh, with the track yeah. the that, track that's possibly going to make it onto your record that's going to come out later this summer and this is very much a story of how sometimes the demo turns out to be the ultimate recording of a song, isn't it?
2: Well, there's a... Now I'm going to bring something in and you're going to shriek, probably. Uh, There's a big mythology around the Summertime Sadness song by Lana Del Rey. Okay? And the mythology is whether or not she put a demo on the record or not. Uh, I came across an article in a, in one of these mixing mags. You know, um, Colleen um, had a subscription for one, and I saw oh Lana Del Rey, and they could never recreate the um, the reverb in the studio again. It was like a one-off, uh, as much as I recall in this article. So there's a good uh, there's a good possibility that she actually put a demo on that album and that was liberating for me when I, once I read that, I thought like, yeah, okay, why are we doing like all these like massive studio productions? I mean, you know, it's like <clears throat> chances are you walk out and you have like something overproduced and you, you, you know, even though you made a dark wave record, it sounds like Taylor Swift, you know, um, worst comes to worse. but no. And, I. I we I, we definitely like the uh, i'm I'm not I don't like the terminology lo-fi uh, too much because it's a category mm. uh, the approach lo-fi is interesting mm. as a concept the the process the, the the category I think is a bit terrible because it's like it says oh it's it's low fidelity it's low quality you know, it, but that's not what it is. It's it's just using old equipment, analog equipment, and it doesn't have that high digital processing. You know that that you're used to to highly compressed CD productions. You know, um, it's it's analog, and uh, a good friend of ours, uh, David Longhart who is one of the most amazing musicians I know. He has a studio where basically you can record like it's 1976. All right, all tape decks and stuff. So it's fantastic. So we recorded a couple of songs recently for this new album there. And then we have another friend, um, Patrick Hollerstein, who has a practice room underneath a discounter. Okay, sort of like a super discount, like, you know, Waitrose, or uh, not Waitrose, um, Morrisons or something. And it's underneath, which is great because that's that's a discounter and he has the cheapest beer. All right. So you can get a can of beer for 50 cents. Mm -hmm. Fantastic. Mm -hmm. Uh, So we recorded two songs with him and that one particular song, uh, we actually taped that at our own little home studio. And it was all one take. All right. Because we figured okay, let's see what where we could go with this one, you know, in preparation for maybe going to a studio or so. And we discovered, oh, we're not going to get it any better. I mean, this is just very cool the way it is. So, but we, we knew we needed a bass and we knew we needed some drums, all right? Uh, because somehow with the effects I have, um, I, I use a double tracker quite often, which then sort of like, Brings 30 milliseconds back or forward. And so it never lines up with the drums. Okay. And we just had a click track. And when we then actually put drums to it, we couldn't put drums, electronic drums to it. It didn't work. All right. Because, because <laughs> the guitars are lagging somehow, you know. Um, so it's a strange song. And the guitars are sort of out of phase a little bit, out of timing in any case. So long story short, we went to Patrick and said, "Can you play drums in this?" And he said, "Yeah, I'm not really a drum player. I can't play drums very well." Little did we know that he actually can't really play drums. He can play electronic drums because he's a phenomenal keyboarder. And his his um his project Windserver, is. Really, really something more interesting in terms of electronics that you could ever hear. It's really good. Uh, he's crazy enough to record uh, together with his mate an entire album, then spool the entire album back into the tape deck and remix it uh, live. Okay. So he, he only gets an album and then press it on vinyl. So it's a one off. It's total coincidence wow. what comes out at the end. Uh, it's, it's phenomenal. But he said, okay, look, let's do this. You guys go up and get some beer and I'll play the drums on this. Little did we know that it was the speed was too slow for him to keep the beat correctly, all right? So he sped up the tape, it's kind of like chipmunks, and then he could play like relatively quickly to it and he got the beat. And then he turned uh, the tape back to the normal speed. So you hear cymbals in this song and they just sound like this weird wobbly noise. Okay, it's because he recorded at a higher speed and then he got shifted back. And so the drums are like, even professional drummers I know um, that i played the song too. They said those drums sound so amazing. Mm. How did he do? That? I love it. <laughs> it's like it's a it's a drummer who, who can't. You know it's it's a keyboard play so and then his girlfriend um, moni she she is brilliant um she uh, she's just a really good bass player and she has her own solo stuff that is also fantastic uh and she played this psychedelic bass i mean she asked us what we wanted and and we said well it kind of sounds like a psychedelic song sort of those neo-psychedelic songs that are around now which we actually like black angels and whatever and uh, she did a couple of takes and we had that in the can and then we thought like okay now we got some stuff to think about going to the studio and produce it and we listened to it and we thought like this is amazing this is just the way it needs to be i mean you don't have to change anything anymore it was it was a stroke of luck coincidence it just all fell into place, so it is effectively a demo, and we're putting it on the record now. Um, it's, the record is being pressed as we speak, so it's on the record. When do you hope? When do you hope that's going to come out? Um, right now, I talked to the pressing plant, um, uh, Bjorn, who we've worked a lot over the last few years, uh, and he told me, "Look, Andre, here's the problem." Uh, If you give me the stuff now, most European record pressing plants will tell you they got a huge backlog because all the bands during the pandemic produced records or, or, you know, Mm. recorded. And if you drop it now with anybody else, you will have it in December. And this was in April. All right. So I said, Oh come on, Björn, are you serious? And he said, Yeah, it is terrible right now. If you want to put, to put out a record, it is six months plus mm, everywhere. Wow. And I said, Okay, well I guess then December. And he said, No, no, come on, it's all right. I'll squeeze it in somewhere because you, you like, you, like I said, we only do a run of a hundred. He's just gonna do. Uh, he's gonna do a little midnight oil and make our record, now and we should have it in July. That's fantastic. That awesome. Good man.
1: Tell, <laughs> tell us a little bit more about it. Is, is it Coffin Dodgers United? Is that the record label?
2: Yeah, that's our label. Right? We started that in 2005 or 6 or something like that. Yeah.
1: And how did you happen upon the 100 only copies on vinyl? Where did that come from?
2: Okay. Particularly our, the releases we do, uh, Ben and Steve, it's like we never sell our records. Okay. Because Colleen and I at some point discovered it is an absolute privilege, A, to make music, uh, and B, to be able to produce a physical uh, recording, you know, and um, we think it's a good karma thing because the band name is MGY. Now, MGY was the shipping code for the Titanic. All right. So, to then make profit of a disaster would uh, just seemed wrong do you know what i mean um it, it went so far that we took records went to halifax where the graveyard is for the titanic uh, you know for people that died on the titanic and we put a record there hmm. um because we didn't want to have bad juju uh, or about karma. So, uh, so we went to Nova Scotia in Canada and then discovered, hey, Halifax is really cool. We could emigrate there. Uh, no such luck. I mean, they only want young people. So <laughs> <laughs> um, we even had a, law- a lawyer and everything involved, but that was just money spent unwisely, to be honest. Mm-hmm. But they had a great music scene. The, the tragedy of Halifax is that the music scene there is brilliant, really good underground scene, but as soon as the band becomes semi-successful, they they buzz off to Montreal or Toronto mm-hmm. with a wider audience. So it's a bit of shame, you know, instead of keeping it local and build, so- build something up locally. Um, but it didn't work out anyway, and so we now are in Wexford, uh, where presumably there are a couple of famous people came from here, but um, a friend of mine saw a band at... I think Camden Palace or Electric Ballroom in London once, and turns out they were from Wexford, uh, Cry Before Dawn or something like that. And the singer, I believe it was the singer, I have to, that I would have to look up, he immigrated to Switzerland. And so this is the exchange program. We've immigrated now here to Wexford from Switzerland, and he, as a, from a Wexford band, immigrated to Switzerland. Cosmic balance, you know, one goes, yeah. one has to come. <laughs> but uh, no, um, the hundred copies. So to explain that now. So we discovered. Look, we only give away this record, our records, um, for most part. We don't sell, and, and mostly nobody on the on the label does so. It is. We, we look for ways. I mean, we can do a, a full album nowadays um at least we could for until shortly we could do for about two grand or less um a run of 100 vinyl self-made sleeves and and we would spend about two grand um and you know in switzerland to to scrape together two grand that was possible for most people and and then you you got a release you know Hmm. um uh, as long as you can record yourself or find a good way to record um, at a reasonable budget, uh, the actual production of a record can be maybe about a 1,000 to 2,000, depending. That's physical. So you know, that, that's that's what we were looking at, but that comes a little bit with the experience of knowing people that can help you out with that or, you know, graphic artists that will do a friendship price instead of charging God knows how much, do it for 300 francs or something, you know, mm. um, like, you know, a couple of hundred pounds and does the full artwork for you and all that kind of stuff, you know. So, or, or like Colleen did her album all herself. She, she got stencils done for, uh, you know, lasers, laser stencils and all she had to do then is spray paint her sleeve and we had a poster sleeve around it and that was it you know production cost about 60 quid uh you know spray paint and stencils um so yes you can do this kind of stuff but it's that that's where punk comes into play sure. again that, that do, do it yourself spirit and um, figure it out that it doesn't cost you a bomb and and um it is very pleasurable to make it you know it's creative it's a tactile sensation to take the spray can and spray paint your next door neighbor's bike in the process (laughs) so much to his displeasure really (laughs) but um, oh well you know we needed a place to spray paint and it was the bike shed so that was a good place to do it
0: it feels like we should draw things to a close Ben what do you think it, it does mate it does well uh, andre what an absolute tri- i i i don't think i've ever said this at the end of a of a of a podcast recording before but i can't wait to have you back on again <laughs> <I feel like laughs> we've we've just scratched the surface and we've talked with you yeah, for longer yeah, than yeah. we've talked to anybody and I, and it's a it's a proper treat to to speak to you and um thank you so much for being so giving of your time and and uh experiences we kind of would just like to close out the show with you introducing the three songs that people are going to hear now.
2: Okay. Uh, the first song is Attack Noise uh, with a song I don't know the title uh, anymore. Uh, that is too far in distant or distant history. Yeah. The second song is Peg and it's called Violet and Eve and the third song is by mgy and it's called two crows
0: thank you so much andre
1: yeah thank you andre